Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Good morning. Welcome to Grand Valley Church Online. My name is Brian. I'm glad that you're joining us. And if you are new or just checking out Grand Valley Church Online, I just want to say welcome and thank you for being here. As always, we would love to connect with you and maybe answer some questions you have about our church or even if you've been part of our church for a long time, if you ever have a question of our church or you want to share a prayer request with us, would you click the link in the description below and fill out our online connect card? And that is one of the best ways to get in contact with us, or you can always send an email to hello at mygrandvalley.ca, or you can find our church phone number on our website. Today, we are continuing our series called A Story of Change, and we're looking at the book of Acts and the birth of the church and how the movement that Jesus began started. But today, we're going to flip the service around. We're going to start with a message, and we're going to end with music as a reflection piece on what we're talking about today. And so this series, A Story of Change, I just want to begin talking a little bit about the series itself because I started planning out this series in December, and when I plan out a series I kind of say, well, on this week, we're going to cover this chunk of the book. And I write a little kind of intro of like what I think each chapter is going to be about. And then on the week of when I'm going to be sharing a message like this, I start the week on Monday, kind of putting down some initial thoughts and and beginning this process of putting together what we're going to talk about and discuss as a community of faith. And so today, our passage is Acts 1, 6 to 11. And in this passage, Acts 1.8 is a passage that I have preached on many times. And when we get to that and you see it on the screen, it might be really familiar to you if you've been part of our church for a while because I've preached on it many times. And so I decided back in December that I was going to focus on Acts 1, 6, and 7 as our primary portion of the passage today. Now, Acts 1, verses 6 to 8, is a political passage where Jesus is reshaping the political views of his apostles. And I didn't know when I planned out this series that we were going to all witness and see the events that happened on Wednesday in Washington at the U.S. Capitol. And this passage of scripture that I planned on speaking on directly relates to those events and what happened. Now, You might be really sick of politics, but I just want to encourage you to please stick with me through this message. What happened on Wednesday was not really surprising. Unfortunately, it was what has been coming for a long time in the way that the the rhetoric and the way we talk about things and kind of the progression that our political systems, both in Canada and the U.S., have been moving on. In fact, the ideologies that are underneath the actions that happened on Wednesday have been happening for decades and growing more and more and becoming more prevalent. And this passage we're going to look at addresses those ideologies. And what's even more maybe is, is a bit disturbing or unsettling for us is that some of the people that were at Washington on Capitol Hill were doing so carrying signs that bore the name of Jesus. In fact, some of the people who were there erected a cross on the lawn outside Capitol Hill as if what they were doing was not only sanctioned or endorsed by Christ. And so today, we're going to start a conversation about this based on Acts 1, verses 6 to 8. And I want to encourage you as well to, um, again, as I said before in the intro, if you want to have more of a conversation about this, I want to encourage you to reach out and connect by email 
or phone. And I'd love to talk more about this with you if this is something that you want to have more of a conversation about. But please stick with me through this. I know you might be tired of politics and this is YouTube, so I won't have a clue if you decide to go and find a different church to watch this Sunday that maybe isn't talking about politics, but please stick with me through this because this is important for how we live out our faith and our witness as followers of Christ. And so we're just going to jump right into the passage, beginning actually at verse 4, at the end of what we talked about last week. And Acts 1 4 starts this way. It says, once when Jesus was eating with them, them being the the disciples who became renamed as the apostles, he commanded them, do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. John, referring to John the Baptist, John baptized with water, but in just a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so the disciples are in this time period where they're waiting with expectation for what this baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to be, what it's going to be when this Holy Spirit that Jesus has promised will come. And so the next verse in the start of our passage today begins this way. Luke tells us, so when the apostles were with Jesus, they kept asking him, Lord, has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom? And so the disciples or the apostles have been asking this question repeatedly. Has the time come for you to free Israel and restore our kingdom. And in how they phrase this is interesting because when they ask, has the time come? The apostles are assuming that what they are expecting will certainly happening. It's not saying, will it happen that you will free Israel and restore our kingdom? But they're asking when. They're saying, when is this going to happen? They believe and they are certain that this will happen. And what that reveals about the apostles is that they assume that their vision of the future and God's vision of the future are the same. They believe they are asking Jesus and asking him repeatedly, when is this going to happen? That what we expect God will do is going to happen. And so we have to sometimes pause here and ask, like, what are they really asking in this question? What are the apostles really expecting when they say, free Israel and restore our kingdom. And so I want to begin by doing a little dive into history, into recent history of this portion of the world and what the the apostles lived in and understood and knew from their recent history, because it informs what they mean when they ask this question. And so we're going to dive into the gap between our Old Testament and our New Testament, because there is about a 400-year gap where we don't have any writings in our scripture, where the the Hebrew scriptures end and the New Testament begins, there's a 400-year gap. But in that 400 years, a lot of things were happening. And the Old Testament ends with Ezra and Nehemiah. In the mid-400s, Ezra oversees the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the temple that had been destroyed in 586 BCE when Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon. And so Ezra has the unique privilege, and now they're under Persian rule. Persia has overtaken the Babylonian kingdom. Ezra goes and leads the restoration and reconstruction of the temple. And so this begins what's called the second temple period in their history. And then later on, Nehemiah gets to go and rebuild the city walls of Jerusalem to protect his people. And that brings to an end the historical books of the Old Testament. Now, what happens after that is that the nations in control of the world changes several times. And what happens is that since the fall of Jerusalem to the 
Babylonian Empire in 586 BCE, Judah, that nation, that region, is ruled by a series of foreign nations until the Maccabean Revolt of 167 to 160 BCE. So in this revolt, this group, led by a man named Judas Maccabees, stages a revolt against the Seleucid Empire, which is a Hellenistic Greek culture that has been at this point getting weaker and weaker and weaker, and they see the opportunity and they revolt and they gain some level of independence. And it's only kind of quasi-independence for a little while. But then later on in 140 BCE, the Maccabean revolt leads to the creation of what's called the Hasmonean dynasty. And so it's this series of kings that have some level of, they're semi-independent at the beginning, and then they become fully independent from 110 to 37 BCE. And despite you know, us referring to this time period as them being independent, they were still often used kind of as a pawn in the proxy wars of what was going on around. And so during this time period is when Rome is really rising to power. Rome is rising in authority and they're expanding their kingdom. And they eventually in 37 BCE, they conquer this Hasmonean dynasty and they put a guy in charge named Herod the Great and becomes the Herodian dynasty. Now, but before we get to that, this Hasmonean dynasty that's had some level of independence for the area of Judah and Jerusalem as their capital and they expanded their kingdom, they had independence as a nation during that time. But when we look back at that time period and when we, if we look at the Jewish scholars that study that time period, and their works and what they say is they are mixed on whether or not the Hasmonean dynasty that is in the recent history in the first century, they are mixed on if this Hasmonean dynasty was a valid state of Israel. Because there's a couple things they are missing that they should have according to the history of Israel. And the primary one is that any king of Israel must be from the line of David. If we go back much further into Israel's history, there is Saul and then David and Solomon are the kings of the time period when Israel is united under one monarchy. And this Hasmonean dynasty from 140 to 37 BCE did not have kings who descended from King David. And this Hasmonean dynasty was strongly influenced by the Hellenistic Greek culture of the Seleucid Empire that they had gained their freedom from. And so this is the recent history of the apostles. You know, so we're looking at about, this time period is about 33 AD. So only about 60 to 70 years after the end of that time period of independence. And the apostles are saying to Jesus, when will you free Israel and restore our kingdom? So now we know a bit about this recent history, that there was a time period when they were independent, they had their freedom, but they didn't follow the Torah law. They didn't have a king who came from the line of David. And even Josephus, one of the primary scholars and primary sources we have of this era, he did not view the Hasmonean dynasty as a valid nation of Israel. So what do the disciples mean? Well, when we look at the cultural history and we look at what's influencing them as they're talking to Jesus, and we look at this history that they know that this Maccabean revolt led to independence. When they are asking Jesus to free Israel and restore our kingdom, their history reveals that they are asking Jesus to create an independent nation for his followers. They're saying to Jesus, when are you going to overthrow our oppressors? 
When are you going to gather people together? And I think they know that violence is not the way of Jesus, but they're still saying, you know, when are you going to, you know, lead this reforms? There was all these understandings and promises and perspectives of what the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. And Jesus broke most of those promises. In fact, that's why a lot of the religious leaders couldn't see that their perspective of what the Messiah would be could fit Jesus. And so Jesus replies to the apostles with a rebuke. He replies to their question of saying, when is the time coming when you're going to do this? And he says, no, 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 that's not what's going to happen. He starts by saying this. He says, the Father alone has the authority to set those dates and times, and they are not for you to know. They asked a question of when's this going to happen, and Jesus says, you are not to know when this will happen. And then here comes the rebuke part. Jesus changes their question, and he says to them this. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, that might not seem like a rebuke at first, but it's a rebuke because Jesus is telling them that what will happen is the complete opposite and is something completely different from what they asked him for it to happen. And so Jesus tells his followers that they will receive the Holy Spirit's power not to create, free, or restore their own kingdom, but to be witnesses to the whole world. When the Holy Spirit comes on them with power, it is not to lead a revolt against Rome. It is not to set up a new form of government. It's not to set up boundaries and to push out anyone who doesn't worship Yahweh. It is not about creating an independent nation in any way, shape, or form. What Jesus is telling them is that the Holy Spirit's power will be to lead them to be witnesses that will bless the whole world. This is the beginning of a worldwide movement that will spread to everyone in the world. And this is what God has been promising and planning all along. If we go all the way back to Genesis 12, the beginning of the first covenant that God ever makes with humanity, he says to Abram, leave your home, leave your family, leave where you live and follow me and I will make you into a great nation. And he ends the first covenant promise with this. He says, all the families on earth will be blessed through you. God's plan has always been to bring blessings to every family on earth. And if we go to something a little more recent, we go to the prophet Isaiah, who has the bulk of the prophecies about the Messiah come through the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah even says this, he says, he says, referring to God, God is saying, you will do more than restore the people of Israel to me. I will make you a light to the Gentiles. That means anyone who's not a Jew, anyone who's not part of Abraham's descendants. And you will bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. This is bigger than any one nation. In fact, when Jesus gives this answer, this rebuke of them saying, when's this going to happen? Jesus gives them something so much bigger and so much more than they could have imagined. In fact, he depoliticizes the apostles' desire for a sovereign nation and redirects his followers to a worldwide mission that is directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Now, before we write off the apostles, remember this. They, at this point in Acts, have not received the Holy Spirit directly. 
And so they are still in this kind of figuring out what does this really mean that Jesus rose from the dead? And it is very understandable that the apostles would look at Jesus who was executed and rose from the dead and saying, if you have this much power and authority, overthrowing Rome would be simple for you. And that is true, but that is not what God's plan is. And so the apostles, they are not gripping what the empowerment of the Holy Spirit truly is yet. But that will come later, and we're going to see that in just a couple weeks. But what this reveals, as the disciples, now the apostles, are asking Jesus, when are you going to free Israel and restore our kingdom? Jesus is telling them that he is not interested in the creation of a so-called Christian nation. Now, this does not mean that we don't have political or civic responsibilities as followers of Christ. We do have those, and we're going to talk more about those before we end today. But the disciples were wanting Jesus to rally people together, to create a movement that would lead to an independent nation, because that's how they looked at their scriptures, and that's how they read them. But this is not what God's plan was. In fact, God's plan is too big for any one country to contain. God's plan is a worldwide focus of his presence and his love and his mercy being led to everyone in the world. This is why God's plan is about all the families, about a light to the Gentile, salvation to the whole world. That is more than any one nation can contain. But what's happened in our world And what's been happening for quite some time, but only now we're really seeing it at the forefront, is that God's plan has been co-opted by something else. God's plan has been co-opted by the politicization and the polarization of our faith, by the way that we struggle to even have conversations without things needing to immediately be pushed to the extremes, where we've reached this point in our society where people will say, if someone disagrees with me, they are persecuting me. And not simply just having a disagreement in how, whatever it is that's being discussed at the moment. This path started decades ago. And on Wednesday, we started to see, and the covers were pulled back on what this ideology, this politicization and polarization, and what it leads to. And I have been struggling to find the words to talk about this, and so I'm going to borrow the words of someone wiser than me. And I'm going to quote from an article that Anne Voskamp, a Christian author, wrote this week. And she wrote this. She says, when Christians believe pledging allegiance to a national leader can save their vision of the world, that is no longer Christianity. That is nationalism and cloaked idolatry. When Christians believe that pledging allegiance to a national leader will save their vision of the world, they have given up on God's plan for the world. And they have said, no, no, we can't actually do that directly the way that God calls us to. We can only do that by pledging our allegiance to a national leader. That is nationalism and that is idolatry just with a veneer over it. And so on Wednesday, we saw what that nationalism and idolatry towards a national leader led to. And we may look at that and say, but I would never do that. I would never go to that rally. I would never do what they did. I would never storm a government building and cause destruction of property and try to interrupt a session of the government. 
we may distance ourselves and say, but that's not what my understanding of Jesus leads us to. But the problem with that is, is it might be true that you would never be there and do that. That we, would, that we wish to distance ourselves from what happened on Wednesday. But our passivity means that we are complicit in what has led to this. In fact, to ignore or refuse to recognize the polarization and politicization of faith in Jesus is to be complicit in the dangerous nationalism and idolatry it has created. If we don't recognize and respond to the polarization and politicization, then we are guilty of creating the environments for for which it flourishes. Now, talking about the polarization and politicization of our faith, of Christianity, of following Jesus, is not really something that anyone wants to do. In fact, it is most likely going to damage our reputation if we choose to speak on these things. And so, to speak on politics as a pastor to a congregation in our church, to say that we need to have these conversations is something that is important to us. And and right now, we are not jumping on a bandwagon. In fact, trying to address the politicization and polarization is something that we as a community of faith has been trying to do for quite some time now. And you may not have quite realized it, but we have been talking about politics for most of the last six months in our Sunday gatherings. And yes, we're having these gatherings online and asynchronously, but we are still trying to, as a community of faith, say how do we address the politicization and and polarization of our faith? And we've been doing it with the series that we've been talking about. And so Recently, we did a series called Talking Points, the perfect blend of politics and religion. And what we were talking about in that series was how do we evaluate our politics through the lens of our faith? How do we put our faith filters first before our political filters, even if that's going to create distance between us and the political party we choose to vote for? And also this year, we did a series called Simply Kingdom, where we were talking about, are we seeking God's kingdom first, not our own kingdom? And we looked at that through the lenses of the parables that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of heaven. We also did a series called, sorry, The Truth is Out There was the series. I skipped one there. I got us out of order. The Truth is Out There was a series about finding truth and finding wisdom. How do we find what the truth really is? Is. And you may not have known this at the time, but that series was actually about fake news and conspiracy theories. How do we respond to what is false? Well, we respond by leaning towards what is true and what is wise, and how do we find that? Then we did the series on Simply Kingdom, about finding God's kingdom first. We took a detour into the Old Testament, and we looked at the story of Jonah, a prophet sent to people who were the enemy of his people, to remind ourselves that God loves those who we are different from. To remind ourselves that God loves everyone and wants everyone to have an opportunity to respond to his message. And Jonah didn't want to go. Jonah tried to flee from it. Jonah did everything possible to not reveal God to the enemy of his people group. But what we realized is that God's love will triumph over that. And Jonah was wrong for refusing to go. And then even earlier than that, we did a series called Bible Study. And you might not have recognized that this series was political, but it was. Because if we don't learn how to read our scriptures well, how to recognize 
what Scripture is telling us, how to read it well, we can unknowingly create our own version of the Bible that will endorse and support any view we want it to. And so how we read the Bible influences this. And then if we go back to last year, we go back to 2019 and leading up to the last Canadian election, we did a series called Asking for a Friend, talking about the difficult questions that we might have about faith. And we did a message in there about political engagement. What's the deal with Christians and politics? And that series was about how do we as followers of Christ be politically active? And that message was actually based on passages from the book of Acts. So later on in this series, Story of Change, we're going to come up to that and we're going to talk about this again in a little while. But the thrust of all of these series put together and what we as followers of Jesus, I hope, are diving into and leaning into and trying to understand and wrestle with is that our identity as followers of Jesus has to be placed ahead of and inform our political beliefs. Now, that does not mean that all of us are going to vote the same way when we step into a polling station. It doesn't mean that all of us are going to respond the exact same way. In fact, there will be a great amount of diversity, but we must be able to look at one another in the eye directly and be able to say honestly that our faith is informing our political choices, and we will all have different things in our political realm in the complexity of governing people. Our government has a brutally difficult task to do. We are recognizing that this year more than ever, how difficult it is to lead a nation. All of us will have different things that will be of more or less importance to us, but we must be able to say that all of those things are informed and shaped by our faith if we profess to be followers of Jesus. And so I want to share another quote from Ann Voskamp from that same article where she writes this. She says, Genuine followers of Jesus do care about politics, not because they care about gaining power, but because they care about helping the people who are disempowered. St. Paul and the Apostle John and King David prove that power is never about self-interests, but for caring for the interests of others so that they know God is interested in them. The point of political power as a follower of Christ is as a way of revealing to others God's love for them. So how we vote, how we support, even what posts we share on Facebook, are we demonstrating to other people that God is interested in them? This is why the primary way that God's plan of revealing his love, his hope, his salvation, this path to a deeper relationship with God begins with this. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is what God put his plan on. That when we receive the Holy Spirit, we will be his witnesses not to separate us out from society, not to create a nation of our own, but for us to permeate through the world, to be empowered by the Spirit and reveal who Christ is to everyone. And that is a difficult task. 
And that's what we're going to see as we keep going through the book of Acts, that how the apostles live this out keeps changing and evolving with who they encounter because they are figuring out how does this movement actually happen. And what we're going to see more and more in the book of Acts is as the Holy Spirit leads, how this movement has to shift and change and grow in order for people to come to recognize who Jesus is. And so, after Jesus says this to them, after he says this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and they could no longer see him. As they strained to see him rising into heaven, two white-robed men suddenly stood among them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday he will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. The apostles are left to figure out the next steps. Their instructions are still to remain in place for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And that's going to be in two weeks because next week there's one more thing that happens before the Holy Spirit arrives that we're going to talk about together. But this is the bottom line and this is what we need to focus on is that the movement Jesus began will not be achieved through political means. It will be achieved through his followers, and that's us, being empowered by the Holy Spirit and being his witnesses throughout the world. So as we look at what's happened this week, and as we try to pick up the pieces and figure out what does this mean, and if we think that that is only a U.S. thing, we are fooling ourselves. This is happening in more countries around the world. It has happened in other countries around the world. And we do need to open our eyes to see how this polarization and politicization is causing damage. But our response is not to fight back with violence, not to fight back with dissension, but to respond with the love of Christ that comes from our empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And so to wrap up our service, we're going to transition to music. And we're going to listen to a song that our worship team recorded back in September. And uh, I picked this song because this is one that helps us reflect and understand about who are we worshiping. The song is called Good and Gracious King. And I hope that as you read the lyrics or sing along from the comfort of your own home, would we recognize and remember that the only king who we worship is Christ Jesus himself. That we place God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit first and foremost in our lives. And so, as you listen to this song, take a moment and think about what does it mean that we follow a good and gracious king. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.